every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? Oh, we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. These are dangerous times. Godzilla's out there and he's hurting people and we don't know why. There's something provoking him that we're not seeing here. I'm of the same opinion. The myths are real. Yeah. Yeah. There was a war. One standing. I keep reaching for greatness because I'm built from it. Who bows to who? Nobody gonna stop for me. Kong bows to no one. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, and I'm very happy to say that I am joined by my lovely co-host in the flesh, Mr. Rob Wallace. And I was about to say, as always, it's a pleasure to be here, but it's an additional pleasure, it's a delight to be here, um, because we're here in person. We are, we're outdoors at the IMAX, which obviously is closed, but at the IMAX at Waterloo... They've put some seats out, I think, just for us. Yeah, I, I'd say being outside the IMAX at the moment, you know, it's, it's nice for, you know, for, for any number of reasons. But the fact that I hadn't quite noticed all the vines, the fact that, you know, the, the, the superstructure uh, within the kind of circular roundabout, the sort of recessed roundabout walkaway is just covered in vines at the moment. And I'm assuming, I'm, I'm not known for my attention to detail, I'm assuming it always has been, but it's giving it a particular post-apocalyptic vibe at the moment. Really is, isn't it? Yeah, the vines have always been here, but yes, it does look like this has just been left dormant for years, and only the Triffids have access to the IMAX right now. <laughs> so yeah, so this is. We have a train going by. We have leaves rustling. So just the kind of sound clarity that you want for a podcast, but the, the earthy texture of earthy texture. And who cares? We're outside and we're in person. It's just so nice. Yeah, I realised when we met up this morning at Waterloo, this was the first time we've been in the same space since the 8th of December. Yeah, so five months, slightly more than five months. Yeah, Jesus, it's, uh, yeah, and a twig's just fallen on us. Um, a long time, basically. It's like, so bad that it's been so long, but it's lovely to see you. And you. We met about an hour ago. <laughs> there's been, there have been, yeah, there's been some conversation before this. That's been some, but not about what we're talking about today. And we've got a few things to cover. So, well, what are we talking about today? Uh, today, we're going to start by talking about uh, a promising young woman, uh, which I think will segue into a, a, a discussion about the Oscar noms, which uh, has kind of, which have kind of gone by uncommented. But you know, the, I think the announcement was a couple of weeks ago now. And to finish, uh, Godzilla versus Kong. I was about to say Godzilla v Kong, like in the, uh, like in Batman v Superman. Superman. The legal, the legal case that was. That's right. Well, I think that a few people will have a legal case against both Godzilla and Kong for property damage. But uh, but yes, and we have some people walking past us, so we'll see if they get quite loud. Tonight. So yes, we are talking about promising young woman directed by Emerald Fennell, who was the showrunner on 
Killing Eve. Stars Carrie Mulligan, plays Cassie, who was once a medical student. She has dropped out and now works in a coffee bar, lives with her parents and seems to just be wasting her potential. She spends her nights getting drunk, getting picked up by men, who then take her home, but more often than not, will take her back to their place and try to sexually assault her, basically, under the guise that they are being very romantic. Um, At which point she reveals that she's not drunk and she asks them just what they think they're doing. And over the course of the film, you realise why she is doing this. When the writer-director Emerald Fennell was pitching this to Hollywood execs, she would tell them that plot, at which point they'd say, oh, right, so she's a psycho. (laughs) No, I think I think you've taken the wrong girl from this. Yeah, this lesson that I'm wanting to tell doesn't seem to be getting across very well. It's like, she's not a psycho. So she's, she's... victimising these innocent young men. No. But luckily, Focus Features and Universal realised that there was actually a real message here and they gave her the money to make it. And it is up for quite a lot of Oscar nominations as well. So, Rob, what did you think of Promising Young Woman? Um... I mean, it's not out in the UK yet, so we weren't able to include it in our discussion of our, our best films. Well, we both saw it last year. Yeah. Um, but, we, so we, but we weren't able to include it in our kind of best of last year list. Uh, it's probably currently, not that I've seen a great many new films, it's probably somewhere at the top, if not the top of my best of 2021 list at the moment. Yeah, it's, if it doesn't place in my top ten, then this is going to be an amazing year for film, because I, it's I'm, gonna I'm be sure it's going to be, 10. I can just sense it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's been last year, and yeah, it's been perfect conditions for making. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for making predictions that always come true. But um, I think it comes to Sky Cinema. So we're recording this on the 11th of April. It comes to Sky Cinema in the UK this Friday, so the 16th. Are they are they taking it as an original or is it? They are. That's so right. So it'll sit comfortably in their, in their <laughs> the, the, the jewel in their in their crown of other originals such as Twist and Hurricane Heist. That's right. They have upped their game with Promising Young Woman compared to some of the other Sky originals that they've had. I mean, this is just by far the best film that they've had under that bracket. Um, yeah, I thought this was this was really, really clever. This is it's a rape-revenge narrative, and rape-revenge films were just really, really big during the 70s and 80s. Um, so it would be things like Death Wish. Charles Bronson films would often have a rape revenge narrative and what it would be would be the woman would get raped the man would be upset by that because the woman is kind of his so therefore he would go out and to make himself feel better he would kill all the people that raped his daughter his wife his girlfriend whatever and that really was like yeah the rape revenge narrative and it was more often not was from the male point of view and the woman was there really just to be raped oh yeah it's well obviously you know it's now become sort of the terminology fridging fridging that's right which is kind of like an offshoot of that yeah where you where the woman isn't really invested in the character she's there they're just there to become a victim and provide motivation for the male protagonist absolutely yeah really interesting and good exception to that is I think a 1983 film called Handgun in which this woman's raped and then she takes it upon herself to avenge herself against this guy um, because the rest of the town don't really want to get involved, particularly the law, because, well, he's a really nice guy. He's a really upstanding member of society, which is also something that feeds into Promising Young Woman in that all the men that she tricks are going to say, no, I'm a really nice guy. You need to understand. I'm I'm well, a really... I'm not, I'm not someone who, who sexually assaults. I'm... 
a nice guy and it's like well but look what you're doing and look at the attitudes you have well the film opens with like her first her first kind of I guess it's wrong saying target because these these are these are men who are in, instigating it themselves that's right um, is you know played by Adam Brody who you know is, is very much known as being the kind of charming decent and the film yeah the film does look at the kind of the idea of like the sort of nice guy culture men who you know who probably are, are decent enough people in their you know everyday life but then suddenly view it and because they view themselves and are viewed as being that they, it gives them a level of entitlement in terms of it's like well no I, I, obviously it's okay for me to take this drunk girl home and I'm being a gentleman and if we hook up obviously it's, it's, you know, it's entirely consensual because I'm a good guy I'm a decent stand up person therefore everything I do must be decent to stand up that's right that's exactly it Adam Brody what else have we seen him in um, he was in I'm going to completely remember was it the OC that he was in I think so, which I never saw, but that seems. Really I watched. I, I, I mostly. OC is one of those shows that I most remember in terms of like promos, like you know, little clips of attractive young people smiling and laughing. Yes. And then you know, segueing into some brutal tragedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the point you make there that's absolutely spot on is like, and if we hook up, then that's fine. And it's like, and that's the way that these guys think of it. It's like, well, we're just hooking up, and it's like, no, she has no say in this. And one of the really good things about the film, I think, is the way that it kind of balances that and doesn't become shrill in terms of its message. Well, it's played as a black comedy. Which it has to be, really. I mean, it's like it's one of those things where this has to be played as a black comedy because it could become shrill or it could become really, really depressing. Um, so it needs, I think, to be played as a black comedy. It, it's because, and, and because of the twist in, all, in those scenes, you know, initially including for the viewer, is that, oh, it's like, oh, actually turns out Cassie does have agency in this situation. And that, that and I think what, what I think it, it's treated as, you know, as, you said, as, a, as a black comedy, as the, the, the shock and the, the laughter out of coming, coming from, oh, actually, shit, the shoe is on the other foot. Um, but also, and I think this is largely due to Carrie Mulligan's performance, Cassie is, to, at least to start with, to some degree or another, in control. Yeah, and again, you know, I, this is this is one of the situations, and I, I, I think it's all. I, I guess it's always best to sort of draw attention to. We, we always draw attention to it semi-ironically. Is the fact that we are two white men having a conversation about female agency in the film? You know, we do need to address that. But another reason why the film works so well is because watching it as a white man, it's like this works in some ways that sometimes are quite uncomfortable, but in a very very necessary way and again like yeah not in like a strident way this is this is a very well balanced script to reach the wide audience and you could almost say this is a film that is aimed at men that men are the target audience for this it's a genre film yeah it is you know it, and it, it's, it, it's a you know black comedy thriller drama um, but yeah, it does have the, kind of the framework of the structured idea of like she, you know, she spends her days at the coffee shop, she spends her nights. The film does follow that that structure to a degree. You kind of see her everyday life and her parents being slightly put out in terms of like, you know, Cassie's this brilliant, you know, again, a promising young woman. Why is she wasting her life at the coffee shop? Not realizing, obviously, that her focus isn't on that. Her focus is on what she's doing in her evenings. Yeah. Which, again, is something that the Great Revenge narrative goes into. I mean, you could say this follows quite a close arc to something like Death Wish, where it's like, yes, during the day is this, and during the night is this, but then his nights begin to intrude on his days more, and there is a price to be paid for the choice that they've made. But the really, really interesting thing is that it's like, the viewpoint of this film and the starting point of this film is completely different. And also, there is some really, really great casting in terms of other people like Christopher Mintz-Plasse, 
So you've got McLovin in here from Superbad, which is a film that just was made from a different time. 2008 is a different time now. And it's like, so you've got McLovin, and this is what he presumably would have grown up into. And he's going to say, no, 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 I'm a great guy, I'm a great guy. And one thing I like about it is it's, also, it's not a film that's just black and white, oh, women good, men bad, because there are female characters in it who are kind of not just as culpable, but who also have a bare responsibility for uh, again, we won't spoil Cassie's motivations. Yeah, but and you know, you've got a sort of Alison Brie as one of her former schoolmates, and you've got Connie Britton as like the dean of the medical school she used to go to, um, and you've got uh, Alfred Molina is in it as like, and he's not credited, is he? I, is, don't, I don't remember if he is. I don't think he is, which is really weird because he's so so good in the film, and also he's only got he's in like literally one scene, isn't it? But it's such a pivotal moment. It's, yeah, it, it, yeah Alfred Molina in the uh, you know the best couch scene since the last one that he was in in, um, in in Boogie Nights oh yes that's right yes he was very good in that as well wasn't he but that point about the women as well is, is also really good in just in terms of the balance and the scene with Alison Brie I mean I just think that Alison Brie is great and so was really really happy to see that she's in this and she only I think she only gets a few scenes like you know maybe two or three scenes but Again, they're really well played, and I think that you mentioned in your review that there's a very dark irony to the punishments that are being meted out to different characters, and the way that that irony sometimes occurs is, I think, again, it's just very, very well scripted. It's also one of those things where you just realise, I think that the time frame of the film in terms of what they talk about from the past is about a decade or so, which when you think about it, it's like, well, 2011, wasn't that long ago but the way they talk about it is like yeah that was just like a different age in terms of attitudes it really really was in a quite a stunning way sometimes but um, yeah so there's just a lot going on in this film which I thought was, was great we're talking about sort of an Emerald script and it's also it's a directorial feature directorial debut isn't it yeah which is yeah one of those <laughs> one of those things where it's like okay so you've got Rose Glass with St. Maud that was her first film you've got oh what was the name of the woman who directed Relic Natalie somewhere. I can't think of her name now. Uh, Natalie Erica James. Erica James, that's it, yeah. And you've got this film as well, and I think there was another film, another female-directed horror film, and this one is... This has horror elements, but it isn't really like a horror film. But it is one of those things where it's like, should we just give a year of like saying okay right so women are only going to direct action films and they're going to do you know, western basically all the genres just to see how different genres are treated from a different from viewpoint from the, from the, from the, yeah which is mad and it sounds passionate to say but it's like well to be honest some of the most interesting films the horror films I love horror films so much but some of the most interesting horror films I've seen from the past year and a half have been directed by women often as their first movie and it's like well just think that I'm missing out if <laughs> and, and it's uh, all about me obviously the cinematography and the design in this are also really striking because everything's kind of pastel and it reminded me a little bit of Emma weirdly yes, in, in the, that's really good shot I didn't mind you that's what you want well just in terms of you know the framing is impeccable it's, it's, it's kind of shot it's shot very glossily and that, 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 that does and intentionally so. There is a veneer on everything. Yeah. And you know, and, and the design in terms of the coffee shop, like a, you know, I think it's like I'm just remembering like a powder blue wall, and the, this. I don't know if it's a logo or just like a like a, a corniche, but I just that it's a film that's full of not like memorable images because they're gratuitous, but just memorable because it's like oh that looks that just looks great. Yeah. I mean, like the opening scene when she's at the bar and she's sat in in this kind of shadowy booth. Um. 
and against that kind of red leather interior. That really reminded me of um, Scarface. Yes, the, 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 club, the club scene in Scarface. Yeah. Yeah. Which of course is just such a rampant male text. Exactly. In <laughs> Which yeah, in itself, it's just like it's a really cleverly subversive film. It is, and I mean, it, it's had buzz. I think going back to, I'm guessing it would have been like Cannes last year, and it was one of those films that you know you start hearing about. It's like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Oh, and Carrie Mulligan, she's great and everything. I mean, I saw her in The Dig recently, which is you know on Netflix. It's good, but yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, Carrie, Carrie Mulligan's in this being good again. <laughs> Yeah, because that's the thing. I thought she was great when she first arrived on the scene um, in the Blink episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> and I think she Sally was, Sparrow. Yes, and she was offered the role to be a companion, but kind of said, no, I want to just do some other things. And those other things were going to Hollywood and becoming a big star. Because she was in Never Let Me Go, and she was so great in that. And the, but that was like 2010 now, I think, or something like that. Um, and I thought, yeah, we are watching the next great star here. And she's done some interesting work since, but I don't know, she just thought, I just can't be asked to get into that kind of rat race and the piranha pool of just having to go for things and ending up in Marvel movies or something like that. But she just seemed to drop off the radar a little um, bit. Yeah, I mean, what else she, around that time she was also in Shame. She yes, really, um, and then she was, I mean, she was in, like, yeah, she was in Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, which was not a great film, but it was like, it was a high profile film that she was in. Um, so she seemed to be doing a lot of good movies or great movies with very very good directors and just yeah, I, I thought I just can't wait to see where her career goes and then it was like I mean I'm probably missing something big I'm but trying to was, think of the most recent film I saw before it might have been Mudbound the D. Reese film that we played on the film festival which I never saw it seems as if she's doing almost like a Shia LaBeouf with whom she starred in Wall Street 2 but thinking yeah I could go and do Marvel or I could go and do some more interesting things and think I'll do that instead and it's like well I'm kind of glad you're doing that because she's so great in this and I think you know we'll get on to the Oscars in a bit but probably going to be Frances McDormand for Best Actress again I'd be surprised. Which, would, which would be the third win and would be like historic for that because no one's done that before but It'd be nice if it was Gary Morgan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, and I love Nomadland. Actually, you know, I said that, you know, Nomadland, Nomadland is also a strong contender for my film of the year. Yeah, it's great. Um, and it's very much my thing. Sort of a, a, somebody recently described it, kind of a genre of film as being uh, like gentlecore. Which yes. Which is just... Yes, because Lucky, uh, the Harry Dean Stanton one, was your film of the year from a few years ago, wasn't yeah. it? And actually, Nomadland is... And Patterson was another one. That's right, yeah. And they, that's a pretty good mini-film festival in terms of very quiet character studies. About, um, yeah, about people having feelings. About people having feelings, that's right. I kind of prefer my character studies to be a bit more, like, exaggerated and lurid in a way. <laughs> I'm just not as classy as you are. <laughs> But yes, it, it would be nice if there was some Oscar recognition here. We'll see, anyway. But, I mean, it's uh, nominated for, I guess, for, well, for Best Actress. Yeah. For Best Picture. Yeah. Best Director and possibly Best Screenplay. It is, that's right. And I think the screenplay might be the one it gets. Um, is it also not, is it not nominated for Best Cinematography as well? I don't be. think it is, but, um, but it would be a shame if it's not. I think uh, five nominations, including Best Director, Best Picture and Best Actress... Why not just list all five? Yeah, no, he's got two, Why say two including? <laughs> it's definitely listed for the four. Oh, sorry, it's definitely nominated for the four that you said. Um, I think the screenplay could be the one that it gets. Uh, oh, editing rather than cinematography. I mean, That's yeah, fine. But... Yeah, because it is. I mean, it's, it's a film that I think runs just under two hours, and I one was never bored, but also thought it does no not seem like a film. Yeah, indeed, it runs for close to two hours. I mean, we won't get into it, but it has an ending that 
I think a lot of people just didn't like and actually were enjoying the film up until the ending and then didn't like the ending. I thought that the ending was really the it's only kind ending of the that point. It, yeah, it is, and I thought it was the only ending that could work because it is the point. It's although it's interesting that apparently in an earlier script, Emerald Fennel ended on the climax rather than Denimore. I'm trying to place what that is. Oh, yes, that wouldn't work. <laughs> that wouldn't work at all. I'm glad that she had to do a local hero on that and add a little bit more at the end that turned something that would have been, oh, okay, into that was great. I mean, I can see why some people didn't like the ending for reasons that we can't go into, but you'll realise when you see it. But I thought, yeah, there's no real other way to end this film and be this satisfying in, in resolving your themes. Yeah, I thought it was great. And the pastel thing is just a really, really good point as well, because it's like, this is really, really dark, but it all has like a bit of a sugary, sugary kind of very indie look to it. That you're kind of thinking, well, I know that it was probably made on an indie budget, but this seems to be consciously a film that is kind of going sometimes for like a bit of a, not a Wes Anderson well, look, but in that kind of ballpark. There is a scene where she and where Carrie Mulligan and uh, Bo Burnham, who kind of plays the male love interest, have a. It's, it's, I, I mentioned music video earlier, kind of vamping, and I can't remember the song off the top of my head, but it's um, it's a Paris Hilton song. Isn't yes, it? Isn't, yeah. um, in a druggist, in a in a pharmacy. That's right. Which, which is, is straight out of a rom com. Yeah, and it, the film is really interesting in how it plays with plays with that, and yeah, and say so Bo Burnham's character is very interesting in it. It's a film that really doesn't go for simple answers, and I really, I really admire that about it. It's, yeah, indeed. And it, it's, 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 it's always nice to have a film that you admire and enjoy. Yes, I really, really want to watch again. So when it appears on Sky Cinema this Friday, I shall... This Friday? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, I shall be putting some time aside to watch it. Yeah, so they're doing it just before the Oscars, because the Oscars is... So we're doing this on Sunday the 11th. Is it two weeks today, the Oscars? Wow. Something like that. So very good for them that they've got this film and can give it some some time before the Oscars because it's going to generate I think more buzz as it, as it gets closer to the ceremony and then I, mean, I can imagine if it doesn't walk away with anything I'll be really really disappointed I think script is what it's going to get but we'll see yeah so is there anything else about Promising Young Woman other than you should watch it no I think I think that's it but I think that's, that provides a nice I, I was about to say the word segue, but it'll be the third time I've said the word segue in the in this. Uh, in the, you can say segue. I've not seen you say it for so long that I'm just enjoying it. Give me some more. Segway Am I known one. for saying the word segue? Is segue a word? Really, but um, but the way you say, it, I've never noticed before how wonderful it is the way you say it. <laughs> you roll your lips around. <laughs> segue, segue. So yeah, I think that forms a quite a nice. I can't think of the word. Link to the Oscars and Oscar nominations yeah so interesting because one of the points that's been made this year is that um, the Oscars are very very different obviously because a lot of the big films that you think would be Oscar nominated like West Side Story and Death on the Nile haven't been released haven't, haven't been released and, and both of those films now have issues around issues cast members where, and, and, and neither film are they in a position to do a, all the money in the world because the cast members against whom there are allegations are in big ensemble scenes. That's right, and, and seem to be the leads. I mean, it's like Army Hammer in Death on the Nile, apparently, is even though it's a big cast, he is kind of the lead as much as Poirot. 
and it's like okay so you decisions were made yeah you can't recast him and you can see why you'd go for Army Hammer I mean yeah, the allegations against him are so lurid lurid but also kind of disappointing because it's like I mean I just really like him as an actor I mean I always say the social network maybe this shows just how little I understand film and, and how film is made but I watched it thinking they are so lucky to have got twins <laughs> who are this good and look so perfect but can both act so amazingly and it blew my mind at the end of the film when I saw it was the same person it's like oh he's a good actor and it's like oh so really so you're you now have these allegations against you as well and also I mean yeah not to kink shame but cannibalism is just a bit weird <laughs> no actually that isn't it's even make, kink it's gonna, shaming it's going to make it's, it's, it's going to make it's going to make watching the Lone Ranger again difficult but given that the villain in that is literally a cow it's, like, right. it's like oh no turns out the Lone Ranger is probably more into this than he's letting on I actually and that makes sense about an interview that I read with Army Hammer I think just after the film was released where he said where, I like to eat people <laughs> where he said I really really pitched to play the villain as well and to do like a social network where I could be that and that because obviously you, I can play two different people on screen at once and I just thought I would be really good as the cannibal villain as well that's not true that's a lie that's a transparent lie <laughs> and in West Side Story it's uh, what's his name I can't think of his name now Oh, um, Ansel Elgort. Ansel Elgort, that's right. Yes, who has some allegations against him as well, but it seems to be that if they were to reshoot, then they would have to reshoot a lot of the film. So anyway, I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so... And, and obviously, now that Christopher Plummer is sadly no longer a, no longer an option. So. <laughs> he can't be in either of them. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so the Oscars this year, it has to be said, even though it was a really, really good year for film it was the smaller films that were getting released which were some of the more interesting films and yeah so we have things like Nomadland Judas and the Black Messiah Promising Young Woman uh, shall we go through each of the the key actually each of the key um, categories that or, might take a while okay um, <laughs> well I guess yeah also there's um, starting with actor because that's the, the top of the, the top of the Oscars page um, best actor is uh, Riz Ahmed, um, Chadwick Boseman, Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman, Stephen Yoon, and I think others, like, I'm, I'm really glad that um, Riz Ahmed and Stephen Yoon made it, made it into the category. Yeah, I've not seen Sound of Metal or Minara yet, but um, but I really want it because apparently they're great. Apparently, Riz Ahmed in the Sound of Metal is absolutely amazing, and it could be one of those things where any other year that would be his. But I think it's going to go to Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I just think it's one of those things where he's such, good in such it. An elect- it's, it's a real. It's, it's got this performance that has a real energy to it, and as has, has been lent extra weight, sadly, by the by his passing. It's, That's right. I think it'd be like a nice. I think it's, 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 yeah, it's 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 a, it's a performance that would have been in contention anyway, but the fact that he's died may well tip it in his favour. Yeah, so they can honour him in that way because it was because it was a it was a real tragic loss that was and. Yeah, so unexpected. Yeah, so I think it will probably go to him. I mean, actress, I think, is going to be Frances McDormand, but who else is in the running there? Uh, Viola Davis, again, for Mar Rainey's Black Bottom. Andra Day for The United States vs. Billie Holiday. Uh, Vanessa Kirby for in Pieces of, for Pieces of a Woman, which is a film that's on Netflix and I cannot bring myself to watch it because I'm just not psychologically in the right place for two hours of people being deeply upset. Me too. It's like, it's one of, I really really like Vanessa Kirby but I can't watch you in this right now because it's like thinking well I'm kind of locked in on my own right now so I don't yeah, like, this, is, this is going to be far way far too raw I'm not in a position 
I just think it's one of those films where it's like this would play really well I think on a Saturday morning when I watch it having made plans to meet up with friends in the afternoon <laughs> it's like you know I know that I said I, I like films about people having feelings but not these sorts of feelings I mean like everyday feelings yeah, these feelings are so raw and the only feelings that I can have right now are feelings that are reflected back at me in the mirror as I just stare in the mirror for an hour after watching the film so no, I'm going to do that um, uh, for Best Supporting Actress uh, Maria Bakalova for Borat uh, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy uh, Olivia Colman for The Father, Amanda Seyfried for Mank, and Yoo Jung Yoon for Minari. So, you've seen The Father. I mean, is this... She's good one? in it. She's not... I don't think she's... She's very good in it. Both her and Anthony Hopkins are very good in it. I think it... It's a difficult category, because Amanda Seyfried just gives like his career best in Mank. Uh, Yoo Jung Yoon is very good in Minari, and sort of, I guess, an unknown... Sort of, uh, relatively unknown in the, in the, in the uh, US. Uh... Ben Close is probably the best thing about Hillbilly Elegy, but it's, um, it, it, it's not a film I got on with. Yeah. But she could win because she's been nominated so many. It could be a career Oscar. But then again, she I, has never won, has she? No, she's never. She famously never won. Yeah. Um, and but then again, maybe Maria Bakalova for Borat. I think that's probably people's favourite best supporting performance of the year. It's one of those things where it's like I think you're right. I think it will go to Glenn Close because it's a career Oscar because she's been so great in films and it's quite surprising that she hasn't I mean, won if she doesn't win it this time obviously the obvious headline again is close but no cigar yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah can't top that <laughs> but I would love for it to go to Maria Bakalova for Borat because one her character has a really nice arc in that film two she was put in some unusual situations there and didn't break character and actually enriched the character by the way that she reacted to them and is I think as we said in the Borat review she's younger than when Sasha Baron Cohen started doing this and she matches him for comic ability and and, and also pathos there's actually and pathos yeah which is I think uh, going on to um Best actor, well, I'm sorry, actor in supporting role, Sasha Baron Cohen. Then for uh, for Trial of Chicago Seven, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, Paul Rishi for uh, Sound of Metal, and Lakeith Stanfield for uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Again, they are both the t- they are the title characters in that film. It's, it's a two-hander, so well, yeah. I guess it's almost like we couldn't spare the best actor spots. Could be. I mean, it's it's an odd one that, but I think the one good thing off the back of that is that it seems to be that Daniel Kaluuya's just a shoe in for it. I watched Judas and the Black Messiah, and yeah, your review of it was spot on. It was um, that was. I knew it was going to be good. I, well, I hoped it would be good because I really like the trailer and I like the idea of the film. It's like yeah, it's based on a very interesting, tragic, true account. I wasn't quite prepared for just how good a film it was. I mean, that to be honest, right now. Again, it's like top three, I think. It's, uh, it'd be interesting to see where that place is by the end of the year. Because that was a film that, as I was watching it, thinking this is really good. And by the end of the film, was like, that was brilliant. Um, and it wasn't just a couple of really, really good performances. It was just the evocation of that time. Just the really awful way that it was like, yeah, this was, was government-sanctioned racism. But also kind of government-sanctioned fascism in a way I mean it was like government sanctioned murder murder that's right I mean it was like yeah it's one of these things where it's like this is this is the way that third world dictatorships behave and it's it's happening here with the highest approval basically because the government was so afraid of um, of revolution but also 
socialist ideals and it's a film that has a large impact but it's not heavy going it was one of those that I thought it just had such an energy to it just the whole way through and a lot of that comes from the performances but also the way that it's directed just it, it actually looks like a film from the 70s I think it's set in 1969 in 70 but it looked like a film from the 70s like kind of thing that would be made by Sidney Lumet or something like that and I thought oh, oh this is good and uh, yeah also to a crib a bit it's, it's part of the um, EJHEU the Edgar J. Hoover Expanded Extended Universe. Oh, yes, indeed, that's right, yes. Yeah, so Martin Sheen, who, of course, is a famous Hollywood liberal, plays Jager Hoover, who basically was a bit of a fascist. So, best film, what is there for best film? Oh, for best film, best international feature of the year is includes uh, Kovadis Aida. Yes, which I was going to talk about that, but I'll talk about it now. Kovadis Aida, I... Just wait for that motorbike to be I so hope that that film wins. So I watched it last year and it was one of those films where for half an hour afterwards I just had to take some time to decompress from what I'd seen. It's um, based on a true story about Srebrenica during the 90s. So a Serbian warlord, Ratko Mladic, and his forces rolled into the town of Srebrenica. All the locals realised this was going to be quite a terrible thing, so they fled to a UN base that was nearby that was largely, I think, manned by Dutch UN forces. And they went there for sanctuary, and what they didn't know was that the UN had basically told the UN soldiers, you can't get involved, really. It's a a very, very delicate international situation, so don't really do anything. So what happened was that the Serbian forces came in, they started to question people, they started to um, to do some very, very suspicious things, like, for example, putting men onto one transport and women onto another, and you just begin to realise that something terrible is happening. The anchor for this story is this woman called Aida, who's played by, could you look her up, I think her name is, is it Jaina Juricic, I think her name is, but... Um, Jasna Juricic? Jasna, that's it. Um, yeah, Jasna Juricic. I'm sorry, but it's like, you know, what I said about um, Francis McDormand and Carrie Mulligan, it's like, yes. But really, the best performance in any film that's been nominated this year is hers for Quo Vardis Aida, because it's like, what do you need to do to get an Oscar nomination? Uh, Presumably just appear, appear in a film in the English language. Well, that's the thing is that she's a translator, so she translates from the English that, Actually, that's, that, that the that, Dutch that, are talking. That, that's, that's not entirely true because Minari is oh, right, yeah, that's, is, 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 is well, a mixture of Korean and English. Yeah, and it's, I just thought it was such an oversight not to nominate this woman because she's so brilliant, as well as having to translate what she knows a lot of the time to not be true. She's also trying to save her husband and her young son. So I think one's in his early 20s, another one's a teenager. She knows that they're in danger. And because she has the UN credentials, she's just trying to get them safe. And it's one of those films where it's like, it's easy to compare it to Schindler's List. It does deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as um, Schindler's List. But it's also like, you know, Welcome to Sarajevo and Hotel Rwanda and those sort of films. I mean, it's so good. It's so it's a five-star movie, but boy, does it have a punch. And it has a really, really haunting ending that's kind of optimistic, but also just raises lots and lots of questions. And, oh, what a brilliant film that was. So really, I just so hope that wins. See, I, I haven't seen Kavada Saida, though, again, you know, I know that you've, you've loved it, so it's definitely on my, it's definitely on my list. Uh, we posted another round, which is the Thomas Winterberg film. Yeah, which seems to be the favourite, and it's like, 
I thought that was fine. I thought that Mads Mikkelsen was the best thing in it. But you liked it. Though, yeah, I, I liked it. I thought it was thought it was it was, it was fun and I had enough kind of emotional payoff to it. That yeah. Um, yeah. Also, there's Collective, which is a Romanian documentary about essentially corruption in the state healthcare system there. Yes, which I haven't seen. Which is, which is very good. I think it's on iPlayer now. I think it's on BBC iPlayer. Oh, all right. Well, that's good. I'll give it a look. Um, but yes, going, uh, going, going on to Best Motion Picture of the Year, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. I'm I mean, thinking Nomadland. Yeah. I mean, seen all of them, and they're all, like... They're, they're in, looking at that category like, there are no films where I'm like no that doesn't deserve to be there mm. I mean I'm not the biggest fan of Mank but that's kind of the one that's the prestige traditionally Oscar feeling film that they could hold on to this year isn't it it's a, it's a film about Hollywood and it's also one that is really really big and glossy and had lots of money spent on it thank god they're not all just indie titles <laughs> well that, there's that in Trial of the Chicago 7 which I actually I, um, I do need to watch I just I don't know I was kind of looking at it thinking I'm not a huge fan it's of it's good but it's very sorkin that's the thing and it's like you know what that means that I'll probably watch it just before the Oscars then going oh, alright let's have a look at this I'll probably like it more than I think I will but sorkin a little sorkin goes a long way and it runs about two and a quarter hours doesn't it so yeah, yeah we'll see but you know you, you just sit down and read the coffee table book yeah. <laughs> yeah. The enormous book that Netflix sent us, or the studio sent us. Which so. is a lovely book, but it's like, this is a lavish thing that has just come through the post. Well, I also, did you also get one for Midnight Sky? Yes, I did, yeah. <laughs> Which has been overlooked, hasn't it? That's the kind of thing. That I you... think it got, a co- I think it might have been nominated for like design or something, but. Do you know what else isn't really in there? Tenet which has been nominated in some of the technical categories but it's like yeah that's exactly where it should be nominated because I'm sorry that just yeah yeah anyway <laughs> so um, yeah I think No Man Land will probably win um, The Father is fantastic The yeah, Father you know yeah. I mean again I won't in terms of its concept it's based on the, and directed by Florian Zeller um, based on his own play and yeah the concept of that and how it executes it as, as you know in, in, as a depiction of dementia is really it, it's, a, it's a conceit which is you know understandably quite theatrical but it really works on screen it really and Florian Zeller what else is it's his, it's his directorial debut has he written something, or something? I think he's, he's got a, a big title that I'd heard of because I recognised the name and I looked somewhere to see where I'd heard it from and thought, oh yeah, that's it, but I can't think of Florian Zeller. And he's also a novelist. Um, I think The Father is his first film. I mean, he wrote, he's written he's written novels and you might you might have seen his name on, like, the, in the West End, on, like, the side of a building. It's definitely something because film he, related. <laughs> um, yeah, because he did... Like the height of the storm was 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 out was out last a couple of years ago now I think, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Anyway, but, fine. To bracket the Oscar talk with a bit of promising young woman again, um, I just remember there's a very interesting piece in the New York Times written by a journalist called Lena Wilson, where she brings the story to task for the way that it approaches the rape revenge narrative and actually is much more favourable to the recent remake. Black Christmas, um, which I think is directed by Sophie Tical, I think her name is. Um, and that was a film that got a bit of a kick in, and I watched it and thought it was much better than I thought 
it would be because of the kicking that it got. And it's really interesting. And she says that there are better ideas in the remake of Black Christmas and how it treats coping with sexual assault than there are in Promising Young Woman. And as I, I'm not entirely sure I completely agree with it, but it was a really good alternate view, basically. So um, if you subscribe to the New York Times, I uh, recommend reading the article. So going on to something that might cause some whiplash from what we've been talking about, from the high pedigree of movies that we've been talking about, to go Godzilla vs. Yes, go, go to Lizard Monkey Smashy Smashy. <laughs> to Lizard Monkey Smashy Smashy, which I think was the working title. And I think they should have stuck with that, because why hasn't there been a film made called Lizard Monkey Smashy Smashy? <laughs> Such a great time. <laughs> to be honest... It kind of sums up the script as well, isn't it? I mean, it's, um, so, yeah, do you want to spend a second talking about the plot synopsis? For... Yeah, shall I, get the, shall I get the plot synopsis on? Oh yeah, let's see what the IMDb have to say about it. The IMDb synopsis says, Lizard monkey smashy smash. <laughs> not a word wasted. It's not a word. The, the economy... In terms of the film, that's a bit wordy. <laughs> okay, um, the... The, ne- the epic next chapter in the cinematic monsterverse pits two of the greatest icons in motion picture history against one another the fearsome Godzilla and the mighty Kong with humanity caught in the balance I mean that's okay great yeah that's that's fine anyway, it's, um, this one's directed by Adam Wingard again a really interesting indie director worked in horror to begin with so he directed a very good slasher film called Your Next and a film that was kind of slasher horror thriller an action film a little bit with Dan Stevens called The, the Guest. Guest. You've seen it? Yeah. It's good, isn't it? It's like, I, I really, I, I, it's a film I really like. And it was also the film where it's like, oh, Dan Stevens got ripped. Like, yeah, he's, whoo, he's damn the man in that film. <laughs> I mean, it's comical just how ripped and perfect he is. <laughs> it's like, have you realised that Dan Stevens was made of marble? <laughs> but he appears to be. It's Adam Wingard. He then, I think, had a bit of a stumble with a film. I can't remember the working title of it, but it was after the first screening, which had this other working title. The audience, who were, I think, an invited horror audience, suddenly realised they were watching a Blair Witch movie, and the film was then released as Blair Witch. So he did the Blair Witch reboot, which I thought had some really good moments in it, but wasn't good ultimately. That's the thing. I think the issue is, like... The first Blair Witch film, there's nothing more to say. Yeah. It's like, well, either you go into the mythology of the Blair Witch, which actually all you're going to do is end up demystifying it, or you just basically do a remake. You basically just repeat it. And it's like, and that's not to say there's like, there's nothing more to be done with repeating it. I think Adam Wingard does some interesting things like with the drone. There's yeah. like, but this is a hiding to nothing. That's right. And it's, there's um, also a great jump cut between the closing of a garage door and right near the start of the film that stayed with me and it's actually it's not a jump cut it's a match cut that's really nicely done so I vaguely remember that but I can't place what it cuts to uh, but anyway but, but the drone point sorry is really good because there's a great bit where they're lost and they say well let's just send the drone up and they send it up and all it is is trees as far as the eye can see and you just can't see anything else apart from trees I thought that's very clever because um, yeah it's like the idea of like how can you be lost when there is so much technology that's right yeah it does do that quite well but ultimately it's like again this is one of those reboots where it's like a bit like The Force Awakens really where it's like yeah you're going back to Source and trying to do some different things with it I think The Force Awakens did it a bit better but, um, but anyway so he had a bit of a stumble with that and then suddenly he's doing the new Monsterverse film and yeah, it's Godzilla versus Kong, so he's the director that's going to handle these two iconic monsters. I thought 
he did it quite well. And in an alternate universe, this episode would be us talking about it with our friend Ian Bird, who was on the Justice League episode. There's a couple of reasons why that didn't happen. One, a Windows update completely blew my computer up and I had to spend a couple of days with my friend Michael kind of putting my computer back together because he knows more about computers than I do. Over Zoom and stuff, it wasn't in the same room. Also, Ian said that he just found the film so incredibly tedious he just didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) Which I was quite surprised by because there are issues with this film. And I was having to think, is it just the fact that I've not seen a really big, good blockbuster since Wonder Woman 84, which, sorry guys, I did actually think was very enjoyable. So I'm a bit starved for this. But I thought that the that as a as a lizard monkey, smashy smashy, it kind of delivered it, for it, me. It did what it said, yeah. It Godzilla was versus Kong. It's And it's similar to Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the previous film in this ongoing series, in that the human stuff is like it just seems as if the filmmakers are saying look we just have to put this in as glue between there, need, there needs to be human characters in this so they can say things to get to the next fight but that's all they do and it was one of those things where <coughs> they've come for me and it was one of those things where I thought it is a little bit lazy the way that you have two separate plots um, involving two different sets of human characters and they never meet up. (laughs) I mean, it's like... They meet up up right at the very end. A little bit, but but it's Alexander Skarsgård who plays the main guy. He doesn't meet up with Millie Bobby Brown, I don't think. He does. Oh, does he? Yeah. All right. I remember that bit. I think so. Yeah, (laughs) Millie Bobby Brown's back. Um, Carl Chandler's still in it, in a very, very supporting role. And it's like, yeah, here are new character actors, like, you know, Rebecca Hall's here, and Brian Tyree Henry, and Demian Birchier, and the kid from Deadpool 2. Yes, he was the kid from Deadpool 2, wasn't it? It was like... Uh, Julian Dennison, I think it is. Yes, that's right. And Alexander Skarsgård, who is the kind of de facto hero, I suppose, along with it's, um, yeah, it's, Rebecca it's, Hall. It's Skarsgård in the, in, the, in the token boring white male protagonist role. He's like, you're very good looking, they'll give you couple of funny self-effacing lines because yeah. they have to because you know that's the one thing you can give the film it's like it, it's self-aware in, in terms of how it deals with a lot of uh... it is I mean I do think that they should have maybe given the human elements of the script a couple of more passes just to maybe beef it up a little bit but then again I kind of thought you know what this just reminds me of those films like Journey to the Centre of the uh, of the Earth and at the Earth's core. Those films that were made during the fifties, Peter Cushing, stop motion animation for the monsters. It's like there's a sense of adventure to this, particularly when and again, um, don't spoil it, but they go into fantastical worlds or worlds where there are fantastic beasts, or you could say there are fantastic beasts in this film and they know where what to find them. <laughs> God, that took a while to get there, didn't it? Um, Tortured, tortured logic alarm tortured logic alarm it's yes. like, tenuous links tenuous links forced joke <laughs> that I thought were really really good and just had a sense of old fashioned adventure to them with it had to be said the best effects I thought that the effects in this film were great and to be honest that's all I really wanted from this movie it was, uh, 
because I knew that's it, all it I was going to get. It didn't have a high bar for me to cross either. Yeah, I, again, you know, I watched I watched that as a blockbuster that's now you know a blockbuster that's now available to watch. Yeah. They've pushed back Black Widow again. Um, yeah, to July. July, that's right. Yeah. So the cinemas are going to open again. I mean, when the cinemas open, I don't know if I'll definitely be there day one. I'll be there week one yeah. to see something. Yeah, it was nice. Just it was comforting. It was it was predictable. It was it was it was one of those things where it's like you, you kind of let that slide on this one because. You know, it's like, oh, Demi Birchier as the evil industrialist. And that's not a spoiler to say that, because it's an an industrialist in a Godzilla or King Kong film is going to be evil. So is, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those things from the very first moment you see him, even before he says anything, it's like, so you're the CEO of the corporation. Well, then you're going to be the bad guy, Also, right? did, uh, And also there's, um, uh, I've, I've completely forgotten, a young, really very young actress called Kelly Hottie playing Gia, who's sort of Kong's friend. I thought that was like a nice touch that... So she's a deaf character, but she's also a deaf actress. Real, that's yeah. right, yeah. So there is a lot of signing in this film, which, again, they work in quite well, and you know, I don't spoil it, but there is a lot of signing in this film that I thought, well, it's, it just shows how we're like you know, evolving in terms of storytelling and representation on screen. And yes, it's not like a really huge part that she plays, but it's just another thing, I think, to enjoy in this film that, as you said, is actually very, very comforting. It's just a hamburger movie. <laughs> and, you know, and, and again, the, the, cast, the cast of characters, they're good actors and they're engaging enough in, in fairly slight roles. I didn't realise, though, that you've got the character of uh, Ren, uh, Serizawa, played by Sean Oguri, uh, who, who's like, basically, yeah, a pilot. I won't, I won't say more than that. Who's meant to be apparently be Ken Watanabe's son? Yeah, that's the. In, that's never mentioned, is it? No, that's what I mean when I talk about the script needed a few more passes because there are things there where it's like, okay, right, so that's supposed to be that then. The same way that in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Zhang Zi plays two different um, characters. She plays twins. But it's not really ever made a thing on fist. Yeah, like... and it's also one of those things that at the end of the film, again, when I watched that to go back to the social network, it was like she was supposed to be two different characters there. <laughs> Maybe I just have an issue with twins. I thought she was just playing okay, the same character. Rob, just to check now, just to make sure we are. Explain to me, as you understand it, the plot of Dead Ringers. <laughs> well, they found these twins. Who were going to it's really, really funny that you say that because I always say that Social Network is my equivalent to a friend of mine who did not know who Jeremy Irons was when I lent him the videotape of Dead Ringers back when we were teenagers. So this would have been like, I don't know, late 80s maybe. He got to the end of that film and had the Social Network thing where he said, I just couldn't believe that was the same person. And I think it was more understandable at that point because the twinning technology in Dead Ringers was you know, revolutionary. Um, and the fact that you could move the camera and have the same person on screen playing two different characters was just so so clever for the time. But it was also Jeremy Irons, and to be honest, at the 80s, he was a lot in the I mean, 80s. That, I mean, that was, was that the year before he won Best Actor? Yes, it was, yeah. And everyone says that he won for Reversal of Fortune because he should have won for Dead Ringers, yeah. Um, but he'd been in things like yeah, Room with a View and that kind of stuff. And um, But anyway, yeah, but my mate... Paul didn't know who Jeremy Irons was, so he had this mind-blowing experience that about 20 years later I had had with a social network as well. <laughs> anyway. Aye, aye, aye. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so it has to be said that... Uh, but, but when they do fight, I, I think there are three kind of major fight scenes between them in this film. I thought, yeah, this... This is what I want to see. It's quite good. I think... I think it's actually, what... it's very good. 
I guess I still think my favourite. I think I still think the two, the best of the four films so far. Uh, I'd say this is second tier. I'd say on the second tier for me, it's Godzilla, it's Godzilla versus Kong and uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, because Godzilla, I think, back in 2014, had the novelty of I think that was directed by um, Ryan. No, it was directed by. Gareth Edwards. Gareth Edwards, sorry, yeah, I get my Gareth and my Ryan's mixed up. That was Gareth Edwards, and uh, and he shot Godzilla in a way that he would go on to shoot Darth Vader in Rogue One, as you know, this very distant figure. You only see like you see a leg, or you see, and so it makes the reveal that much more dramatic. And then there's Kong Skull Island, which was uh, by um, John Boy Roberts. That's right, yeah. Which is essentially like shooting is is a Kong as Apocalypse Now, and riffs on a lot of the Vietnam imagery and. And I, I like those two films because they're films that... I this might be unfair to Godzilla vs. Kong and to Godzilla King of the Monsters. They, they're much more filmmaker films. Yeah. Or they feel like oh, films yeah. that have more of a more of a vision to them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I re-watched all the films before going on to Godzilla vs. Kong and Godzilla, film directed by Gareth Edwards, the 2014 film. I mean, that's just a genuinely well-made film. The way that he conveys both scale in that film and also just the way that you're there is I mean it's his camera placement and shot choice is just amazing there is an astonishing moment and Godzilla comes to Hawaii I think it is and causes a tsunami and it always sorry the camera's always from the viewpoint where you could be standing so it's on At which there's none of which in Godzilla vs. Kong it's, all, it's almost like all aerial shots that's right yeah and it, and it's it all tries, God's eye yeah. it tries to do that sometimes so you'll be in like yeah, like a helicopter or something like that but it's very much but there are no eye. civilians in that film no and that's one of the things there where they do manage to clear all of Hong Kong in about 20 minutes flat I mean it's like in all fairness they've had a lot of a lot of practice by this point I suppose yeah I suppose they have yeah but there's a shot in Godzilla where you're on top of uh, I think it's a hotel and the camera kind of like you know watches the water come in and slush all the cars about and then looks up at some people firing flares from the top of another hotel and catch a glimpse and the flares then light up this massive leg walking by and it's like yeah that's better than everything in all the subsequent movies but I do enjoy the subsequent movies and actually I did like Kong Skull Island much more this time in terms of I thought it was it was a much more consistent film than I remember it when we saw it at the IMAX which is just here um, where it was only really the helicopter bit that I loved watching it on the second time it's like actually this does hold up as a much more sustained and enjoyable film and it's having more fun with the tropes I think yeah it is and it has to be said like yeah John C. Wright is just great in that film <laughs> Doing the Dennis Hopper bit from Apocalypse Now. There was no post credit scene in this film, and I suspect they're thinking, where do we go from here? What else can we do? I mean, there are lots of other Godzilla monsters. Yeah, there's monsters, not really but... a Justice League equivalent of... No, and there are I mean, there are lots of monsters that they haven't got to yet in, in the Godzilla-verse, but I think they're just maybe hedging their bets, saying, what's the appetite for this now? We've done four of these. Yeah, none of them have really done stellar numbers but they've all done enough to justify right, another the next one, one yeah. yeah that's right so it's like we'll see but this has done really well at the box office around the world it's done really well in China um, I think the honest trailer points out yeah of course it has because it smashes Hong Kong <laughs> so of course it's done well in China the government's probably told everyone to go and see it <laughs> this, this is what will happen if you don't inform one of your neighbours <laughs> yes we're going to send the boys around also I would recommend watching this film because there is it has to be said a very well kept secret that I did guess was going to happen before it happened, but I'm not going to say why, because to say why would then be a big spoiler that I think a lot of people would be able to guess the secret off the back of. But there is a very well-kept secret in this film that I thought, oh, good, I'm glad that's happened. I think, I think, I think another part of it is, though, that 
it's a little bit of an unfair balance because I, this might just be me. You want Kong, like if, if somebody has to win, you want it to be Kong. That's the really interesting thing, actually. Um, this film likes Kong so much more than it likes Godzilla. And to be honest, I'm more of a Godzilla person. Really? Because because yeah. Kong's relatable. Kong is a primate. Kong is essentially, I think, a bit evolutionary. It feels like Kong. You might be able to like relate to Kong. You might be able to have like a, a mighty Joe Young gorillas in the mist type thing with Kong. Whereas Godzilla is a fucking lizard. It's a massive lizard. Well, he is a lizard, but it's also one of those things where the really interesting thing in this is that he looks is that Godzilla looks much more reptilian in this movie than he does in King of the Monsters. Because he does have like yeah, quite like a mammal face, doesn't he? He has that kind of you know, the snout is quite mammalian. And I thought it was really interesting here, it's like, no, they've actually made him seem much more like a lizard than he has in previous films because he has to be the bad guy in this one. I mean there's you know, lots of um more negative reviews have said, yeah, it doesn't really explain why they fight. And it's like, well, I think it does more than, say, Batman versus Superman. It's, it actually Which gives was... a very clear reason why they fight. That's actually just built. It's like, yeah, because it's all based around the idea of alphas, and when monsters turn up, they have to fight. That's right. It's like, that's that's a very simple motivation. It's like, you can't, you can't, over, you can't over-complicate this, because it's a... Lizard monkey smashy smashy. <laughs> Not to label the point, guys, but lizard monkey smashy smashy. <laughs> I mean, I think that was the pitch. Can we have $150 million, please? What's the film going to be about? Lizard monkey smashy smashy. That's fine. There you go. Um, and that's it. In the words of Highlander, there can be only one. You can't have two alphas, so therefore there can be only one, so that's why they fight. And I did think, okay, you've kind of set it quite easy here that that Kong's the goodie Godzilla's the baddie and I know there's going to be some shifting there because in the previous films you've kind of said actually Godzilla seems like a baddie but some, but he's a goodie and we do need him so anyway yes there we go but it's like I'm not going to look too much into character motivation for the big monkey and the big lizard I do find thing we, we, we owe it though you know, on this opportunity to mention the best sort of kaiju well specifically Godzilla film of the last of recent years Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla. In which he is far less cuddly. Godzilla, there is a threat that needs to be dealt with, but it's... That's, a, that's just a really, really good black comedy, that film. Yeah, because it's a film that uses Godzilla as an allegory for... Well, for, for it takes it back to kind of the roots of, of nuclear fear, but it also plays with ideas of bureaucracy and ineptitude. And yeah, it's, 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 a, it's Godzilla as a very black comedy. Yeah, but it's also one of those films that says, ultimately, bureaucracy is better than just one guy out going out there and doing it all alone because of course there is like yeah Japanese proverb none of us are as smart as all of us and that's a film that does do that even though it also says although, Japan, that, although I, I think inadvertently that might also be calling for humanity's ex- extinction because if none of us are as smart as all of us then it's like then why not go with none of us <laughs> I think, I think well, it's, maybe if you trans maybe it's a translation yeah the seas would, would be cleaner if there were none of us <laughs> so <laughs> So is there anything else to say about Lizard Monkey Smashy Smashy? Yeah, I'm not desperate to see another one. But, again, <laughs> I know that this has been our attitude to a lot of films recently that, you know, are not particularly good or particularly bad. It's like, I'm glad it exists. Yeah. You know what? I'm glad that we were able to sit here next to this ludicrous building with its ludicrous screen <laughs> and hopefully at some point return to it and watch things whether good or bad that people have had the the time and the resource and the opportunity etc to to make if society just needs to exist to support my going to the cinema then you know what let it rip 
Is there anything else to say about Lizard Monkey Smashy Smashy? No, but I guess uh, given this probably the very occasion where we remember, it's probably a good time to uh, do the plugs. Thank you for the reminder. Shall I go first? Yeah. Cool. If you want to follow me on Twitter, then go to at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. If you want to follow my writing, go to electric-shadows.com. If you want to follow me on Letterboxd, then you can go to letterboxd.com slash robdan. Um, more importantly, if you want to follow the podcast itself, then we are on Twitter at MovieRobcast. We are obviously on Spotify, Apple, and if you want to rate and review us, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, then please do, because it's much appreciated and it helps the pod. And Rob, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace uh, or my writing at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Um, I'm also shortly, uh, well, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, going to be making an appearance on the TV Time podcast um, to talk about um, House. Yes, I was going to ask, when is that episode happening? Uh, sometime in the next few weeks. Excellent, cool. So it might be around the time that we do the Oscars roundup then. That's entirely possible. Well, when it's available, yeah, let everyone know. I will do. Okay then. Well, thank you for listening as always. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. It's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. Lately, I've been feeling like I might want to get back into it.